Welcome to the Edible Alpha podcast series, your source for actionable insights into making money in food. I'm Tara Johnson, the Tara's Way Lady, and we're here to talk to a wide range of stakeholders about what it really takes to grow a financially viable food business. Hey, Patrick, thanks for coming on the line to talk to us today. Sarah, how are you uh, doing? I'm really excited to be here. I, well, I'm doing great. It is, um, we're just south of the snow here, so things are um, are not bad around here, uh, worse up north, but, you know, that's Wisconsin in the winter. <laughs> yeah. It's about a little bit down here in North Carolina, but it's very warm and uh, good day to be going to work. Yeah, yeah. So Farmers are very happy. I bet they are. Um, so... I was trying to think when I was driving over here to the studio today when we met originally, and I think it's a couple of years ago, right? Yeah, I think we originally met uh, back in, I guess it was 20, March of 2016 at the uh, Wallace Good Food Network Conference. That's right, that's right. And you were in the session that I was teaching there, right? Yeah, I think I attended your session on um, like financing your food hub or understanding mm-hmm. your food hub financials. Yeah, uh, and really enjoyed uh, you know your inputs and everything you were saying. So. Yeah, yeah, and and then I saw you again at Expo, right? Correct. Yeah, yeah. Um, we uh, we did a booth at Expo this year, and um, personally, it was my first time exhibiting at Expo East. So, uh, really cool to see, you know, a lot of people I knew in the food industry all come out for that event. Yeah, isn't that amazing? So. That, in a nutshell, kind of um, actually kind of summarizes the trajectory you've been on that, that you know, we, we met at Wallace, and at that time, I think you were at the, at the phase where I think you were in business. Correct me if I'm wrong. You were in business, but you were raising investor money at the time. Is that right? Yeah. So back in uh, early spring of 2016, uh, we were only in about seven grocery locations. Um, we had gotten confirmation from a few major customers in our home region, uh, North Carolina, that they wanted to take our locally grown frozen products. Um, and we were ready to scale up with some investor money to support that new distribution. Yeah. And so freezing is a whole thing. So did you, do you have your own facility to freeze or do, does somebody else own the facility? Yeah, so Steel of Seasons has done it in two ways. Uh, I think I think both are uh, can be acceptable, but an entrepreneur really has to uh, dive into the numbers and understand you know what they're getting um, with with either production scenario. Um, and so the difference being internal production, owning your own facility, owning your own equipment, uh, and the second way to do it being co-packing uh, with a partner that you know already does the production um, and probably can operate at a larger scale than you can. Um, so Steel of Seasons, uh, in our first year in 2016, uh, or when we were scaling up to, you know, reach mainstream distribution, um, there wasn't a effective co-packer, uh, operating in North Carolina. And so we created our own, uh, IQF facility in a shared use commissary kitchen. Wow. Um, it was quite an undertaking. I bet. Um, you know, it, it had some advantages though. We had control over our operations, um, and we had control over when we wanted to run product. We didn't have to ask anybody or, or we weren't entangled in any sort of partnership. Um, 
And so since we got that flexibility, that was nice, uh, but we were constrained by a lot of things, too. You know, the need for capital to bring that equipment in, uh, the increase in our fixed costs, renting that facility, uh, and the, you know, increase in cost due to construction to get the facility up to up to where it needed to be. So um, did you, did you before you go beyond there, so... So this was a shared-use facility, and and did you, like, partition off a place to put your IQF? Like, how yeah, did that so work? Could, yeah, so the shared-use facility was already partitioned into four kitchens. I see. Uh, and so we just got one of the kitchens. We got kind of lucky on that on that piece. Yeah. So then you could bring the IQF equipment in there, and did they already have freezer there? So, they yeah, we brought the IQF equipment in. Um, what was really, they did already have a freezer. It was about a 20-pallet freezer. Uh, but what we didn't anticipate was uh, strained that having that small freezer yeah. was put on our operations, not our logistics, not our warehousing. Um, we had a lot more pallets to store than we had space. Mm. So, you know, we planned to store off-site, um, but the complications came and we had to repackage the product uh, or mix, you know, different berries together, which were stored off-site in bulk. Mm-hmm. Uh, we incurred a lot higher logistical costs uh, and, you know, added a lot higher cost of goods to our products than we were originally anticipating. Got it. Yeah, it's really hard, that sort of, that exercise of planning out your capacity across, you know, like, okay, so you need this amount of capacity for the actual IQF, and then yep. it comes out and it has to go on pallets into a freezer to be staged yep. or whatever, and all the way through the process is pretty complicated. Yeah, so entrepreneurs really need to think out, you know, each little piece because uh, every single one can be a constraining factor mm-hmm. uh, and might make the facility you think is efficient a lot less efficient uh, than it turns out to be. Right. Uh, that, was, that was the case with us. Mm-hmm. Um, but then by 2017, we did have a uh, co-packing partner who had uh, built a much larger facility. Mm-hmm. Um, so in 2017, we actually transitioned to full uh, co-pack uh, production. Uh, and we almost doubled our gross margin uh, making that change. Isn't so, that amazing? Um, yeah, really, really the right choice for us. And uh, we were able to pay our farmers a little more money mm-hmm. um, and didn't have as much money tied up in logistics and just, you know, uh, labor costs uh, from inefficient production. Right. How many farmers are you working with now? Yeah, so right now in North Carolina, uh, we work with about 25 farmers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in our expansion states of Georgia, Florida, um, New York and New Jersey, uh, we're adding uh, about five or ten farmers per region for the mm-hmm. 2018 production year. Cool. So, is your um, is your business a cooperative or is it an LLC or a or corporation? Yeah, so we're a corporation. Okay. Um, we wanted to make it as easy as possible uh, to bring mm-hmm. in outside capital. Yeah. Uh, and at the early stage, when it was a brand new idea and um, you know, people weren't sure uh, how well the brand would perform in store, if we could even get shelf space to be in the store in the first place. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had to take the, the capital that was willing to take that risk. Right. Um, so we didn't feel like a cooperative was the right structure at mm-hmm. first. Uh, and so we ended at a corporation. Yeah, that makes sense. And you, you were making a lot of um, capital investments at the time. So, yeah, you had to fill up that equipment, right? So you had to grow pretty fast. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So um, it sounds like you do fruit. Do you do vegetables too or just fruit? We did uh, vegetables at first. Uh Uh, We put vegetables on hold in North Carolina, but we're looking at vegetables 
uh, in new states. Mm. Uh, again, it comes down to finding the right processing and the right production to do, mm-hmm. you know, uh, pay your farmers enough money and make the, you know, uh, product attractive at shelf price as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a pretty happy medium there, finding the right production to fit your suppliers' needs and fit your, your retailers' needs. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's going to give you some regional diversification, which is probably a good idea, too, these days. Exactly. Yeah. I was just on the phone with somebody who's a a, a grower client of ours who, um, you know, he he's unusual out here because he grows fruit. So, uh, you know, we're not a fruit growing state cause, because yep. of all that snow, right? Um, but we have a couple of microclimates here, one being Door County and one being um, Bayfield, where historically we've grown fruit. And there's just been so much climate variability over the last five years for the fruit growers, you know. So if you have something that's kind of on the edge of where it really ought to be grown just climate-wise, and then you have variability, it doesn't look good, right? Yep, that's actually the exact situation we ran into with uh, raspberries in North Carolina. Hmm. Um, there was something we originally wanted to do. Uh, mm-hmm. We're really interested in putting into our products. Uh, but after speaking to farmers in the western part of the state where, you know, raspberries have traditionally been grown, um, we learned that, you know, climate change has, has warmed that part of the state up, and um, they've actually had to rip out raspberry bushes because they were not producing. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were creating viruses or, or spreading viruses among other crops, and um, blackberries and blueberries and such, and um, it just really wasn't a good fit for this state. Mm. Yeah, I, I there's more of that coming, I think. So it sounds like you do some blends. Yeah, definitely. Um, right now, our core products are a uh, berry blend, uh, blueberry product, uh, frozen strawberry product, uh, frozen peaches, um, and we're looking to add you know frozen blackberry uh, as well as. Uh, some additional blends, mixing in raspberries or apples or cherries uh, as we expand to somewhere like the Northeast that has access to a greater diversity of products. Right, right. That's fantastic. So um, one of the things I find um, interesting about you guys is in all this work that I do, I, I rarely run into somebody like you who has had from the get-go this big vision for you know, really scaling up market opportunities for um, for local producers in at the you know at the level that you're doing it. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a really important part of the puzzle to us. Um, you know, we think that, and, and we strongly believe that you know, local food should be available to everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, this shouldn't just be a product for you know the whole foods or the sprouts of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we really have to put this product into as many grocery stores as possible and. Um, We'd love to hit on hit on our work with food deserts later on, but um, you know, in the short run here, we need to work with our growers to to create the production we need, and, and again, work in partnership between the growers and the retailers um, to make sure we're growing enough product to you know get the price where it needs to be. Uh, to also work for our retailers and, and move the product off the shelf, mm-hmm. uh, so it comes to that full circle of partnership is, is really important. Right. And are, are your growers um, typically the growers that you work with, are they already wholesale growers or, or are you helping some smaller ones scale up? Yeah, so it's all across the spectrum. Uh, we work with some of the smallest growers in the state who are only one or two acres uh, and some of the largest growers in the state 
um, you know, might be 100 or 200 acres. Mm-hmm. Um, so by leveraging, you know, the equipment and the resources of the larger guys, um, we're able to bring, you know, more of the smaller growers into the frozen market mm-hmm. um, and open up this new market for them. Um, and, you know, some of them might need help with gap, you know, gap assistance, uh, gap certification. Um, they may need just help uh, understanding, you know, what the equipment's going to be and how they're going to train their uh, workers to pick in the field a little bit differently, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to utilize our strawberry equipment, for example. Um, but it just comes with, you know, good communication and being upfront with people about expectations, um, you know, makes that process a whole lot easier. Right. Uh, so we're, we're pretty uh, aware that we need to bring, you know, our grower specification, our, our product specification list uh, to the growers so they understand exactly what we're looking for, um, be upfront about how much we're able to pay, you know, in advance of the season, um, and then be really clear about, you know, when the product is coming out of the field, this is how it needs to be cooled, this is how it needs to be transported, uh, and this is, you know, the end delivery site where you'll have to bring the product. So if you want to work with us, here are all the steps in the puzzle, here's what you're going to get paid, um, and, you know, then, then they can, you know, choose to be in or out in advance of the season uh, and, make, and make their plans about the rest of their market. Right. And do your growers, it sounds like um, some of them are, are quite large, so they're probably selling to other folks as well. Like you're not their only yep. customer. Definitely. Yeah. Um, in my work here in Wisconsin with the Wisconsin Food Hub Cooperative, now they don't freeze, they're aggregating only. Um, okay. But what they've seen is um, growth in the farms that so, that sell through the hub as a result of having the hub. If that makes yep. sense. Are you seeing that as well? We are, yeah. Um, for us, the before the farmers put in new acreage and new crops, um, one of the cool things about our model is the frozen market can buy a little bit different uh, product specification than the fresh market can. Mm. So in the first year or two, our growers might not be increasing overall acreage, uh, but they're getting more money for the acreage they're already growing. Mm. So our farms that, you know, like the, the strawberries may have been water damaged because of rain, or the blackberries may, may have had some early season hail damage. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, those type of cosmetic blemishes or cosmetic defects uh, don't matter too much when you freeze the product. Hmm. So, you know, these you know, the 10% of uh, strawberries that the farmer used to have to throw away um, or just leave on the vine for compost, uh, they now can pick those berries and sell them to us and just get a higher amount of revenue per acre, make their farms more profitable. Um, again, growing on the same acres they're already doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's so fantastic. That's yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, I rarely run into situations where, where there is a possibility to um, to save those products and and you know and get any money for them, so that's terrific. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I bet your I bet your growers really love you. <laughs> well, it is a little bit of extra work, as I said, working mm-hmm. with us and um, you know uh, yeah. utilizing our strawberry equipment or um, you know having to get uh, wholesale bins to put the blackberries. Oh, of course, in right. They go to being frozen. Mm-hmm. Uh, but once you have those pieces of equipment, and, and some of which we supply to our growers mm-hmm. um, as part of the package, mm-hmm. um, you know, it, it, it does get that extra money, but it is a little bit of extra work. Mm-hmm. Of course. So um, 
so your products are all going out under your own under your own label, or do you do some private label as well? Yeah, all of our products go out under the Seal the Seasons label mm-hmm. uh, as of today. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't do any private label, um, but you know the, the private label category is increasing uh, pretty strongly, and you know we'll see where we go in the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's an interesting opportunity, I think, because people tend to not understand why anybody would do that. And you know, I w- with Tara's way, I had a big way plant needed to keep it full. There's no way my yep. brand would be would grow fast enough, right? So, yep. and that I mean, lots of lots of food manufacturers who have their own in-house manufacturing do private label um, because of that. Um, but I, it's just, I also know brands, though, now big, you know, $500 million company kind of brands who are doing a lot of private label. It's just become part of, you know, the cost of marketing is now so high that oh, yeah. um, they actually make, in some ways, for a while, more money on the private label. Yep, yep. I've, uh, I've heard similar things, and uh, I think... We've strayed away from that at first because we don't have our own manufacturing. And we don't right, of course. Operational, um, but I can see that being a big part of any any food manufacturer, any food entrepreneur who has their own facility mm-hmm. uh, should certainly be thinking about that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so, um, so is your business model for scaling up? It sounds like when you go into a new geography on the sales side, you're also um, building up your supply side in the same geography. Is that roughly correct? Exactly, yeah. So, you know, the Seal of Seasons brand promise is to sell, you know, locally grown products from your community. Um, so we have to make those local products specific, you know, from a consumer's community. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, while we're selling North Carolina products uh, between, you know, Charleston, South Carolina, and Washington, D.C., uh, as we're scaling into the Northeast, into New Jersey and New York markets, you know, North Carolina really isn't local anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're working with New Jersey and New York farmers and Pennsylvania farmers as well uh, to freeze some of their products and make those products available, you know, in their community. Mm-hmm. Um, and having a yeah. lot of like, excitement around that. Right, right. And and frozen is kind of an interesting category to me. I mean, there's been so much innovation in brands around the grocery store. And when you get to the frozen section, there's still it's still kind of moribund, I think. You know? There's I totally a, agree, yeah. 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 Yeah, so for you to come in and you know, make investments in creating a, a compelling brand in the freezer section is, um, you know, it's an efficient way to do this, right? Because you can you can be developing one brand instead of a whole bunch of brands, which would be difficult to do right now, I would think. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the frozen section is it's so nice that we have a longer inventory shelf life. Uh, we don't really have to worry about spoilage to a, to a huge degree. Mm-hmm. Uh, or, you know, spoilage on the shelf. Um, and, yeah, we're uh, really able to put a local product in and make it available year-round as well. Mm-hmm. Um, eliminate seasonality and keep that product in our consumers' communities. Mm-hmm. And how are consumers responding to it? I, I ask that because when I every time I look at the market research data on um, Frozen and the, the uh, you know, consumers' attitude about Frozen, they kind of have this image of 
awful frozen mixed vegetables from, you know, 30, 40 years ago that were at freezer burn and all that stuff, right? Yeah. They had to get over that. So how, how, how are your consumers responding? Yeah, so we've been really intentional about uh, changing that perception. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, at first, we've, we've really, uh, or in the first place, we've tried to use vibrant, bright colors on our packaging. Um, and we put, you know, farmer's market-esque pictures of our fruit uh, right on the front. Mm-hmm. Um, again, try to get the consumer to recognize this product is coming from, you know, farmer's market farmers right in their community. Um, so, you know, telling this, the, this story uh, through visual, through, you know, visual storytelling is super important. Um, and we think that's, that's played out pretty well, um, you know, on the shelf. Um, our data has shown that, that consumers are really picking up our product. We have... Um, you know, the top three performing product in, in most of our stores at this point. Cool. Um, and have really shown that um, through per, you know, per skew growth, when some of our competitors, um, their dollar sales might be decreasing year to year, mm-hmm. um, the CLC's brand dollar sales are, are increasing pretty drastically. So, um, you well, know, IQF. The story's in the data. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's fantastic. And IQF, I mean, it's fantastic for two reasons. Number one, you're keeping track of the data, right? So you know you can you can even tell me what you just told me. That's fantastic. And then the second thing is it's it's fantastic because IQF has really made a difference to freezing, right? Yep. Yeah, I mean the product, you know, quality and nutrition uh, is just so high. Uh, that's the other thing I don't think consumers have, you know always experience. No, uh, and they don't understand that. But now we have this high-quality product. I think this, it just takes, uh, you know, one try to get the consumer to pick up the product, put it in their smoothie, and it tastes the difference. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's what it comes down to is having, having that flavor. Um, so, you know, it's great talking about, um, you know, our benefits to the environment, our benefits to the community economically. Um, but my favorite part of the product is just, you know, having a higher-quality and better-tasting smoothie. Right. Right. And ironically, it's, it could be from fruit that's blemished, right? It's crazy. I mean, you know, some of the overripe or quote unquote, they're giving you some air quotes right now. Um, can't see on the podcast, but, um, you know, having overripe fruit that um, would spoil too fast and, and, gro- and people could buy it at the grocery store mm-hmm. is, you know, the best type to freeze because it's, it's so ripe, so juicy, um, and it's just so packed with flavor. Right. Oh, my God. You're making me want to buy your stuff. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So now you're at a place where you're clearly, you know, I I tell people that um, food companies don't grow in a linear way. They kind of do a step function, right? So it sounds to me like you're ready to do another step here. Yeah. So um, over the last 16-ish months, um, since we've entered market in North Carolina, We've been working to validate our brand and um, internally been working to grow our gross margin to be at a point where uh, we are comfortable to scale. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, your intuition's right. We have, uh, you know, zeroed in on our brand, on our visual identity, on our brand promise. Um, we've also, um, so thankful the operations team has, has increased our gross margin pretty drastically um, through our co-packing model. Uh, so given those two things, we're, we're ready to grow. Um, as I mentioned, we're, we're now expanding to New York and New Jersey, uh, as well as adding Florida, Georgia, and uh, we have our first uh, committed client on the West Coast. I can't 
can't say who that is yet, but uh, cool. we'll be able to share that pretty soon. Cool. Well, that's a lot of growth. So let's go back to when you began. Um, how much money did you think it was going to take way back when to do what you're doing? Oh, man. Um, I don't know, way back when, uh, we, didn't have, we didn't have the best idea. We always knew it would take a lot, a lot of capital. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, uh, I've, I've honestly been, yeah, I've, I've always been a you know, huge believer in local foods and, and what it can do. Um, but I've really been taken aback by our, just by our customers' reaction to this product mm-hmm. um, and how it does perform on the shelf. So, you know, we used to think we might need, um, you know, one or two million bucks. Uh, we're now thinking, you know, two or three times that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, it, it depends upon a lot of um, levers and, and uh, you know, our customers have suddenly started asking us about uh, more frozen vegetables, mm-hmm. which we didn't think was going to be in the pipeline right away. Um, but, you know, when, when your customer really wants more products, uh, you have to take a second and think, um, you know, maybe I should listen to them. Let's, let's, let's explore this strategy a little bit and see, uh, what it would take or, or what it would do, what it need for our company, what it would mean for our business to, uh, you know, restart the veggie program and get veggies going. Right. Um, it really aligns with our mission of, of helping a wide range of farmers. Um, one of the hardest things about uh, not pursuing veggies was, you know, saying no to all the vegetable farmers that, um, you know, wanted to partner with us and, and needed help growing their farms. So um, to be able to come back to them and say, you know, the customer's demanding this product, we just need to figure out the uh, production in between. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a really exciting thing to happen. Mm-hmm. Well, and I do think that there are more opportunities to secure IQF co-packing than there were. Um, exactly. Yeah, I was in Iowa doing a training recently, and there's a IQF facility there, and um, for just for example, right? So, I I think. You know, having a business model that could scale nationally that relies on more local processing, like you're you're describing, might not have even been possible five years ago. Exactly. Yeah. Well, but that's exciting for you guys. Yeah. So we're we're looking, um, you know, raise capital to to increase mm-hmm. our balance sheet and, yeah. and you know, take on more inventory in new regions. Mm-hmm. Um, the grocery, excuse me, the grocery industry is. You know, pretty notorious for their slotting fees as well. Yeah. Uh, we know we'll have to, to pay to play in some markets, uh, so we'll need financial support to do that mm-hmm. and, and grow uh, inorganically. Mm-hmm. Um, and then obviously, you know, managing a much larger geographic footprint takes, um, you know, more experienced procurement staff, more experienced operational staff, um, and additional sales staff to manage those new accounts. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we want to be intentional about bringing on the right people you know, really in advance of this growth, uh, so everybody's prepared, um, and we're not scrambling or, uh, you know, dropping any balls. Right. So what does it take in your experience to get people to find your product? So you get it on the shelf, right, in the in the freezer section. Yep. What does it take to get people to start buying your product? Yeah, so that's, um, I think that's one of the big places we, we have some more learning to do uh, about the best way to generate brand awareness and, um you know, really pull new consumers into the category. Uh, of course, we're, you know, we're running simple price promotion, mm-hmm. um, you know, generate some awareness, get the yellow tag up there and uh, show the consumer, hey, you know, check this thing out, it's on sale. Mm-hmm. Um, so the simplest way, you know, we do is that, is we just run price promotions. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we don't want to train the consumer to buy, you know, a lower price point. Right. Um, you can't do those too often. 
Um, we have started experimenting a lot with social media, mm-hmm. uh, and we've seen some amazing returns to just tell again telling the visual story of our product through farm photos and um, you know just the scenery around the farm. Um, so you know the, over the summer we took uh, photography of about ten different of our farmers, and we've shared that throughout the year. Uh, remind people about their local flavors and you know just how good that strawberry tastes uh, in May in North Carolina. Right. Uh, so getting pictures from the field and, and showing uh, what's happening on the farm during the peak of the season uh, is a great way to articulate that. Um, I don't know about too much about social media benchmarks, but from what I've been told, our, our posts are uh, you know performing pretty well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do you do any demoing or sampling or event marketing or any of that? Um, so since we're in the frozen aisle, a lot of that sampling and, and demoing can be very difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard to demo and sample, you know, close to your product in the frozen aisle. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's also hard to put the product out on your demo station. Mm-hmm. You know, frozen. <laughs> right. So uh, we actually have not done very much demoing and sampling. Uh, we focus more on uh, social media, press, uh, you know, doing public uh, relations work with newspapers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the price promotion, and then uh, feature and display. Mm-hmm. So getting our product in the circular, um, or using the grocers online, um, you know, awareness programs uh, have been interesting to us, um, as well as just you know linking the, the grocers click and pick page mm-hmm. uh, to our social media, driving mm-hmm. consumers right directly to the grocer through e-commerce. Right. Well, it's it's an interesting thing because I I tell people that every the recipe for promotion or to get sell sell you know get your product off the shelf is different for it seems like it's different for every product right and the thing yep. is you you develop your own little recipe for how that yep. works and then you figure out an infrastructure to and this is a big part of the growth phase you're in right now to get the infrastructure in place to replicate that everywhere. Certainly, yeah. Um, I think that's why we, and we thought about, uh, you know, scalability of our processes across the company, not mm-hmm. just the marketing. Um, you know, it's real nice right now that right now we can go down to our co-packer and we can, you know, sit on the production floor and we can watch the product, uh, you know, move through the process and we can take samples. We can see how it's going. Um, but as we're operating across the country, that's not always going to be the case. Uh, so what, you know, technology systems and traceability programs, can we put in place that we, you know, we can monitor our co-packers whether they're two miles down the street or whether they're halfway across, halfway across the country. Right, and that that traceability, the trust that comes from traceability, is a big part of your brand, right? Totally. Yeah, um, we're right now in the process uh, working with a local university system uh, to improve our website and put that traceability function right on our website. Um, I'm not a web coder, so I can't do it myself, but, um, you know, we're trying to find the right resources in the community so that a consumer can go online, you know, type in the lock code that's on the back of the package and, you know, be told exactly what farm that comes from. Right. And the truth is you have to have that data for um, food safety purposes anyway. So oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so it's just a way, trying to figure out a way to make it more accessible. Exactly. That's that's the craziest thing for me is we have all of that data right now. Isn't in that office. crazy? I know. It's just how do we share it with other people? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, yeah, yeah. But what a you know what a brave new world, right? 
certainly exciting. Yeah. Um, yeah. Our, again, our customers getting excited about it is uh, when it comes full circle for me. Yeah, absolutely. So, okay, so um, you're, it sounds like you're kind of in exponential sales growth mode at the moment. Is that fair? Yes, it is. Um, we're pitching a lot of new major accounts. Um, we're in, you know, just shy of about a thousand stores right now. I, when I met you, it was two. It was effectively two years ago. You were in seven, and now you're at a thousand. That is, that's exponential growth. When you think yeah, about we feel it, great, right? We feel great about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we feel super blessed. Yeah. I bet you do. Well, and and it's got to have been. It's yeah. So so then you're at Expo, right? A big industry trade show. So did you have a booth? We did. Yeah, we had a little small booth uh, against the wall, but um, provided us great visibility. We were mm-hmm. actually really happy with the traction that came through our hall. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were, what we were most surprised about was the number of conventional grocers um, at Expo. Yeah. Uh, it really just wasn't, you know, natural sector stores or co-op. Um, there were no, it's everybody these days. Yeah. Yep. I mean, uh, I was blown away at Expo West this um, last year. I mean, I, it was like 100,000 people, and that's not open to the public, right? So that's not exactly. just the natural channel, man. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. So um, so you're at Expo, and, um, you know, that's a great place for you to get visibility all up and down the East Coast. Yep. So it sounds like uh, you really leverage that coming up into the season. And now, does that mean you go to your growers and start talking to them about growing for you? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, how do you handle that relationship with between demand and supply? Yeah, so, you know, um, with our stores last year, we know our, you know, our growers already know kind of where we were, and they just need to know how much we want to add uh, to last year's numbers. Um, so, you know, we have deadlines in, in early spring where we have to come to them and, and tell them how much we need to freeze. Um, and we do that on a grower-by-grower grower basis. And, and then if growers have extra during the season, um, we have kind of a contingency program. So if we sign up to do, you know, 10,000 pounds of uh, strawberries with one of our growers and, you know, towards the end of the season they have an extra two or 3,000 pounds, um, we are able to accept that uh, but on different payment terms that we can still, you know, save their fruit, make sure it gets a good home, um, but it doesn't necessarily destroy our cash flow, and they have those same expectations up in advance. So, again, right. they, they will be paid for the fruit. Um, it just won't be paid as quickly as the original deal. Got it. Yeah, because the cash flow requirements of these purchases must be pretty substantial. Yeah, they, they definitely are. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, it's for us balancing how much fruit we need to buy, how mm-hmm. fast we can pay it out, how fast we'll get the money back from the grocers. Sure, your uh, cash cycle is any long. Any other financing tools we can use to, you know, bridge that gap. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're not yet big enough for, uh, for to get a line of credit from a bank. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we've been talking to several, and, and we feel like we're really close uh, to making that happen. Right. So... Um, did you did you ever get an SBA seven A guarantee? Yeah, so we did get an SBA loan. That's what I thought. In September of twenty sixteen. Yeah. Perfect. 
Yeah, because I remember having that conversation because it's part of what I do in that class is, you know, people have this idea that if they're going to raise all this money, it's got it because their investors think that they have to raise equity for all this. And it it actually isn't an efficient capital structure anyway. So, exactly. yeah, yeah. But I would think that you're getting there, like getting to the place where you could get a, um, you know, a, a lender to do a yeah, line of working large, capital. The issue today is that um, we've raised convertible debt in the past. Right. So our balance sheet is uh, quite stacked up with Got it. Uh, you know what what our lenders see as debt. Yeah. Although, you know, the vast majority if not 100% of it will convert into uh, preferred right. equity uh, when we raise our equity round. So, right. Um, what our what our lenders are looking for is our financials are you know getting to a comfortable spot. Mhm. Um, but what they're looking for is for the balance sheet now right. to be converted, you know, all that CD to be converted over to equity. Right. So you're going to have one of these grand closing day moments where you're going to close on, you know, all those, all that, you'll close on your equity raise, all those notes will convert, and the senior lender will come in with a line of credit. And you'll be exactly. opening a case of champagne when that happens. <laughs> Not just the bottle. <laughs> oh, it'll be a case. Yeah, it'll be I'm a case. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's super exciting. So, are you in the middle of that round right now? Yeah, so we're really just you know we closed out a convertible debt uh, from 2017 in late yep. December. Yeah. Uh, so early this month, I you know started reaching out to institutional investors, mm-hmm. uh, and I've been making intros you know really throughout this month. We have um, three or four this week, three or four mm-hmm. next week, and. Um, as we wrap up kind of the introductory calls, we'll, we'll see who's moving forward to diligence in February. Right. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, it sounds like you're getting good traction with investors, too. Yeah, I'd say um, every investor is different. So, you know, while our customers um, do want similar things, you know, we're selling the same product into a, the same category and um, the category pressures and what's, what's going on in that category is very similar. Um, across grocers, uh, investors are really different. You know, uh, when you're talking to a family office, your pitch has to be a little different than when you're talking to a, a venture capital fund or um, when you're talking to a, a consortium of angel investors. Um, so for me, it's been a big learning experience to know, you know, what to emphasize with each group um, and how to best present the same exact information uh, in a language that they, you know, may not, may or may not understand to a greater detail. Right. Um, so. Right. You know, you're really intentional about your audience. Yeah, yeah. And and um it's it's an art because you can't change the offer, right? It's one offer. So what one of the things that I I see people doing is like they when they start talking to investors, they're like every investor they talk to kind of wants something different and so they keep changing yep. everything and you can't like change everything, right? It's got to be yeah. consistent. Um, so, so one of the things that I, um, think a lot about with your particular business is that you have a, you know, for, well, social impact investors, you know, define themselves in various ways. So it's sort of a complex thing to talk about, but you clearly have a social impact dimension to what you're doing, I would think. Oh, certainly, yeah. From a re- I mean, from an investor point of view now. I mean, I, I get that from what you're doing, but then there's the translating what you're doing to, is that going to resonate with a social impact investor? So 
Um, so, yeah, is that happening for you? It's actually just been one of the biggest challenges of our business uh, is that we have both socially impact-oriented and financially impact-oriented uh, investors. Mm-hmm. And um, at, the, at the angel stage, they, they mesh pretty well together. Um, but I think as we're entering this uh, higher growth stage, um, you know, their, their concerns and, um, you know, their needs are a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Uh, sort of trying to put together the right group of investors um, and what's been surprising to me is uh, a lot of the social impact investors uh, don't want as much growth, and they don't don't seem to want um, you know as, as aggressive a plan. Um, but from you know from from my perspective, I want to you know create as much impact as possible, uh, you know, right as quickly as possible. Right. Um, so I I kind of see the financial side of, of you know top line revenue growth. Um, and the impact side of how many farmers we're working with and how big yep. a market are we creating for these farmers mm-hmm. that, you know, very aligned. Right. Um, it's an it's such an interesting thing. I mean, I, my joke it, for for me with Tara's Way was around here, people, when I tell them I sold the company, they, they're like, ooh, are you okay? You know, like somehow <laughs> having bigger ambitions and scalability and all of that is a bad thing. Um, and I, I think it's gotten in the way of the development of our food system. You know, like we yep. want we want these small farmers to succeed, but we have this romantic notion about what they're how that's going to happen, right? And yep. yeah, and and I, th- I my sense from what you're saying is that you're running into that same thing. Yep, totally agree. Mm-hmm. Uh, some, uh, you know socially oriented investors won't invest because our products are not organic. Right. Um, and, you know, in, in their view, organic is the number one priority and making healthier food accessible for, right. you know, lower income inv- individuals falls farther down the ladder. Right. Uh, so we're looking for investors that, you know, have a want, you know, lower income individuals to eat healthier food mm-hmm. um, and might see that higher than, you know, just getting rich people more, better food than they already have. Right. Uh, so. Yeah, and I think that's a, one of the big lessons about social, you know, when you're looking at talking to social impact investors because social impact is in the eyes of the beholder, right? And so, exactly. yeah, it's a challenge to find the, the people who for whom the, the mission is really aligned. And then has it been your experience that... Um, that the social impact world at the end of the day is kind of similar in terms of what kind of returns they want? Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's a barbell, again. It's, they either want very little return or they don't want return. Mm. They want a company to stay small and, and more malleable, mm-hmm. um, in which case I don't know how big an impact you're really making. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, versus a company, uh, some of them do want, you know, the exact same return. Uh, you know, they want their cake and to have it too. Right, um, right. And I mean, those are some of the ones we've had more success with, honestly, mm-hmm. is, is people looking for a, a market rate return, mm-hmm. um, but ones that want their, you know, want their investments to align with their values. Right. Um, and we're, we're very happy to do that. Yeah. Well, and, and it's kind of crazy but when you look at the landscape of investable alter- alternatives out there. 
Um, yeah. The space, I think the space you play in that is attempting to do things on a fairly ambitious scale with social impact, with sort of at least in the ballpark return to, to investors, there aren't a lot of legitimate businesses out there to invest in who have that bundle of attributes. Yep. I, uh, I totally agree. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think there's more than we may... Uh, more than we know about. I mean, a lot. It's not yeah. like we, you know, there's the, the the national clearinghouse of these, right? It doesn't exactly work that way. But yeah, you mentioned that you were doing some um, other mission-related things. I think earlier in the call, um, um, just you know, sort of food desert kind of stuff. Or yeah, so um, you know, we we really have a two-part mission of how one helping you know, smaller family farms reach a new frozen market mm-hmm. and sell more of their product. Um, and number two, on the other side of the equation with the people eating the product, um, we want to make sure it's accessible, you know, across state, across geographies, across income demographics. Um, and we try to be really intentional about that. So, you know, while some brands might wait to, you know, sell in a lower income or a rural store, um, we are pretty confident that, um, you know, people will like the product if they have the right price point. Um, and so since we're a conventional product instead of organic, um, you know, our product has a, a much more uh, competitive price point already. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we can do some things to make it come in line uh, in a more rural grocery setting. Mm-hmm. Um, the store also helps us, too, by, by providing a lower gross margin on the shelf. Um, so by working as a team, we're able to get the product to a price point that really works uh, for that consumer um, and allows that consumer to buy local, you know, just like a, a more wealthy individual could at Whole Foods for a higher price point. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've had a lot of success, um, you know, not, not just putting the product on the shelf, but actually selling, uh, selling cases. In December, uh, we're in a 25-store chain uh, in eastern North Carolina, you know, rural, rural store, uh, about 20% of those stores are in food deserts. Mm-hmm. Um, and we sold 52 cases out of that retailer in December. Cool. Um, so, you know, pretty excited that, uh, you know, people in these areas are buying the product. And the product wasn't even on sale that month. So, you know, um, pretty great validation that people across uh, rev- or income, um, you know, want to buy local. And it should be accessible for really everybody. Mm-hmm. It, it's been interesting for me looking at data about local, like what, what mess, you know, who is it that, what consumers are most interested in local? And I, I think everybody kind of thinks immediately it's millennials and yes, they're, they're interested in it, but, but it's also, um, people in, it looks to me like like communities that are economically disadvantaged have have kind of embraced this idea that we got to support our own to yep. support our own economy and so that group is really circling around local yep and so for us putting the you know putting this product back in the very communities that's grown mm-hmm. is the most important thing we can do so we're, we'll spend the extra time and the extra staff time to, you know, find these more rural clients and work with the right distributors to get them the product. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not a huge, you know, huge segment of our revenue, but um, again, it's something we we feel is important to put the time into to, you know, build the company and the brand we want to build. Right. 
And there's there's something to be said for brand loyalty that comes from that too. You know, there it's um, it's one thing to to keep driving the exponential hockey stick up there, but it's also really nice when you run a food company that's got a good solid base of loyal consumers that aren't going anywhere. Yeah, I mean, I mean exactly. Um, that's why we you know we try not to price promote too often, mm-hmm. um, and you know we want to get the. Uh, get the brand's identities out there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of our stores let us put up uh, shelf strips or, you know, a static cling on the shelf to tell our brand's story. Uh, and we've seen some great results from that. Cool. Uh, we had one of our top customers uh, came to us last week. Uh, they had been in some of our other stores and saw what our other partners are doing um, with shelf strips and with, um, you know, more point of purchase or point of sale materials. Um, and this customer is uh, um, a clean store customer, so they don't they don't really want any point of sale or any materials up in their store. Uh, but after seeing what the awareness we are generating at our partners and the, the buzz about local, um, they want to put up you know point of sale material in their stores now. So you know again having a coherent brand and just talking about our local brand promise has uh, you know got our customers' attention. That's fantastic. So. It's it's really rewarding for me when I um, interact with entrepreneurs like you over time because the degree, when I met you a couple of years ago, you were already pretty sophisticated, but the degree to which you have come along as, a, as an entrepreneur and a business owner is really impressive to me over the well, two years. You. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, seriously. I mean, you you're you're speaking in a it's almost like a whole new vocabulary, right? That people like you amass as you're doing this over time. So, um and it sounds like Seal, Seal the Seasons has a a really really high impact bright future. Yeah, yeah, we really hope so. Extrapolating information from and our data from North Carolina, I think we can make a really big impact on farmers across the country. Um, our goal by the end of 2019 is to work with over 100 farmers, and um, you know we're well on our way. Uh, this year we should break 50, and and should double that in 2019 to 100. So that's amazing. Um, wanna uh, one one thing I found really useful is uh, you know in every board meeting and every investor quarterly investor update, um, we of course you know put the financial information, financial scorecard, um, you know towards the top of that conversation, but. Um, immediately following that conversation with our impact scorecard and, you know, checking in with our investors and our board about where we stand on impact and, and really, uh, you know, putting that right behind the financials and orders of importance keeps that top of mind for everybody, and, um, you know, keep, keeps it on topic. So Yeah, absolutely. And it's a great management tool for you for, you know, communicating with your team as your team gets built out here, you know? It's not just you anymore. It's a, it's getting to be a bigger and bigger team. Oh, yeah, yeah. So um, and internally, we, we break those down to KPIs per department, and, um, you know, people know what um, what we're focused on as a company and, and as a team. So um creates clarity. Absolutely. That. Have we missed anything? Um. I mean, uh, we're happy to talk more about, uh, you know, telling our story to investors or about... Yeah, know, well, why don't you elaborate uh, on that a little bit? Yeah, so, um, you know, telling the story of, of what we're doing and uh, pitching our mission and uh, our values and our brand to investors has been 
uh, I think the most challenging thing for me. Uh, I mean, initially, you know, pitching your vision and, and starting with your why, and, you know, why you care about what you're doing is, is very natural and very easy. Um, but once you get past, you know, the first hundred stores or something, you know, pitching, pitching your vision and pitching your values and, and getting enough money to get the brand started, um, people then want to see real data and real proof, right? Right. Um, so I think that, you know, the first, the first little bit of fundraising is, um, can be the hardest for a new entrepreneur, and it certainly was hard for me. It was the slowest going. Um, but once I learned to lead with my why and lead with my mission, mm-hmm. um, that first part of the fund, that first, you know, 100, 200 stores, we, we pulled that off. Uh, the hardest bit has been, you know, really, I think, the last, uh, I don't know, maybe last 8 to 12 months where we've had the uh, perspective. We've had the, the store count. We've been in about 500 locations. We've been selling a lot of product, um, but we haven't had insights into the, you know, um, per, per category or per product information about, you know, how much is this one selling? How are we doing versus our competitor? Um, we just know we're, we're doing all, all right, you know. Uh, so that, have that you lack of data that lack of proof has been has been really challenging yeah so have you started buying any data scanner data yes yeah, so we actually uh, we signed our first broker uh, the other week and we got our first bit of data in this past weekend um, so instead of buying the data we pursued a um, you know a broker contract right right which you'll need anyway mm-hmm yeah which you need to do to work with most large customers in, in most cases, not always. Um, we've been pretty successful to date without them, but uh, having them and having that insight, having that person you know, in that store every month and being with that category yeah. manager. And it's one thing. Month is, yeah. Yeah, it's one thing if you're only in North Carolina, right? But there's no way you're going to support Florida to New York without brokers. You know, it's exactly. just not happening. Yeah. Yeah. So you got to see some data. I mean, yeah, I, I tell people that this, I lo- I'm so glad you brought this up because it is different. So, you know, now you're pitching your business model, not necessarily your product and your mission anymore. And you got to exactly. quantify that, right? Exactly. Yeah. That's been the hardest piece, but um, we, we literally got the data last night. So I'm. Um, so you're digging in, man. It all morning and, and how we're trying to present. Uh, start putting that information out to uh, some of our partners. Mm-hmm. And then the other part is with brand investments, you know, you care about you care about what the data are telling you, but you're also like that transition from, you know, first first thing you get on the shelf, so how many shelves are you on? And then, then what does it take and how much does it cost to promote to get people to try you? So trial, how much does, you, does it cost you to get trial? And then what does it take and how long does it take and does it ever happen that you get repeat customers, right? So it's exactly. kind of this three-stage thing that the more seasoned the investor is in, a, in food and, you know, in CPG, the more they're going to be hammering you about those things. Exactly. And the longer it takes to generate the data to prove, you know, to prove you're getting that repeat buyer. Yeah. Uh, and how long they repeat because... You know, one of our customers, if you buy one of our two-pound bags, it might be, excuse me, it might be two weeks or a month before you buy. And, mm-hmm. You know. Uh, yeah, right. be in store long enough to get enough of those people to be doing that to right. demonstrate growth and velocity. Right. Uh, so it may take you six to 12 months before you really have a good segment of time to present that data. Mm-hmm. Well, one thing that's sort of intriguing to me about that with you is, 
oh, in your products right now is that part of the reason Tara's Way has become, you know, such a it, it's a number one in the natural category these days. Um, and yep. part of the reason is that whey protein in smoothies is kind of like core, right? It's the yep. and people put uh, things around it. But one of the things around it that people a lot of people do is berries, right? So, yep. and you do this every morning, right? It's not like you're just having berries every once in a while, right? So I, I, I have them every day when I get home. I'm, I'm an afternoon smoothie drinker, but yeah. Well, whatever, right? So yeah, I mean, for people, we do this because for health reasons, and and that is like such an ideal repeat customer for you. Exactly. Yeah, so we're we're pretty thankful for it. Mm-hmm. Um, is that who your cook? Do you know? Category. Do you know whether that's who your consumer is? Uh, we've done some some pretty basic, uh, you know, like Survey Monkey tests and consumer insight stuff, and yeah, people have said smoothies, baking, uh, but smoothies is definitely you know the top top feedback. Uh, a lot of people doing um, you know like yogurt and granola, sure, uh, parfaits. And yep, stuff. yep, sure. But that's good news for you. Great news. Um, and we, we try to co-promote now with, uh, like local granolas, mm-hmm. uh, or other local, uh, smoothie products, mm-hmm. trying to get the word out. Right. Um, right. A lot of it is people not even knowing, you know, local frozen fruit exists in their store. So of course. I've gotten a lot of consumer messages, uh, just thanking us and people being surprised that this is an option. That makes complete sense. And and so yeah, we're getting back to the investors though. It's all those metrics, so they they can look at it and say, oh, it costs them. I don't know. I'm making this up totally. It costs them a hundred thousand dollars to get you know this amount of sell through to get them to a place where they're going to get repeat sales without too much promotion, right? I mean, yep. yeah, it's quantifying all of that for people. Yeah, and. I mean, we're honestly just still too young to have a lot of those answers. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've only really just entered our second year in market. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, you know, from, from how things are going and our trends, mm-hmm. uh, I'm pretty confident in, in the brand. And um, we validate our consumer feedback. So we're uh, ready to grow it up. Right, right. Well, yeah, you're, you're pitching a business model now, not, not a product. So, yeah, quantify, quantify. Exactly. Cool. Well, this has been an amazing um, interview. I'm so glad we got together because it's an incredible journey you're on, and the impact you're making is is you know has already been substantial. But the it sounds like the opportunity is pretty pretty strong for you moving forward. Yeah, I've uh, enjoyed telling you about it. I hope some other entrepreneurs are able to you know learn from our experiences. Um, and, you know, maybe maybe go to co-packing model before uh, a little bit faster than we did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that, that, uh, there, there's a lot to, that people can learn from listening to you. So thank you so much. And um, I look forward to seeing you. Are you going to be at Expo West? Uh, I per- personally won't be at Expo West, but uh, our chief sales officer, John Mills, might be there. Cool. Uh, if he is, I'll, I'll shoot you an email. I'll give you a heads up. Yeah, let me know. I'll ch- I'll catch up with him there. Cool. All well, right. Thank you so much, Tara. I enjoyed talking with you. And 
as always, reach out if you need anything from me or have questions. Absolutely. Thanks so much. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. You can get more podcasts by subscribing on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And you can learn more about Edible Alpha by visiting our website at ediblealpha.org.